Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 16. It is Friday the 2nd of December. I'm Sarah and I am your host. Kicking off with some smoochy kiss shout outs. Shout out to Mari Roses, who was listening to our spunky little show all the way from Brazil. Louise McNamara, lawyer at Gosnell's Community Legal Centre for listening all the way from WA. And Kimberly Milne for listening all the way from London. Now, if only I can get some listeners in Queensland, then I'll be set. Just kidding. I see you. And you get the biggest smoochy kiss of all. Have you checked out the website yet? Briefcasepod.com has all my presenter portraits, plus links to their socials so you can continue the conversation. Plus, while you're there, why not subscribe to the newsletter? 100% no spam guarantee. Okay, it's Burjo's catchphrase time. What's in the briefcase this week? Ouch, it's hot. Hot off the press, that is. A conversation that I had just yesterday with President of the Land Court of Queensland, Fleur Kingham, following her honour's high-profile decision to refuse Clive Palmer's application for the Waratah coal mine. I also took the opportunity to get a handy-dandy demystification of the Land Court and its processes, and as always, seized the opportunity to embarrass myself by cracking a few jokes that resulted in actual judicial eye-rolling. But don't worry, I edited out the painfully awkward silence. Enjoy! What are the kinds of matters that Your Honour sees predominantly in the Land Court? Good question. The Land Court is a specialist jurisdiction and we have a range of functions that have been brought together from a number of different institutions that have all been merged over the years into this thing called the Land Court of Queensland. It's actually one of the oldest courts in Queensland and it was originally established to deal with disputes between the Crown as the owner of land and leaseholders. The settling of rents, for example, for use of land. And over time, its jurisdiction has changed, but it's always about land. Yes. So numerically, our largest caseload, in terms of numbers, is land valuation appeals. Okay. But we also deal with claims uh, for compensation when the state or a local authority or a statutory body compulsorily acquires land, so compensation for the landowner. Resumption. Resumption. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) I know some legal words. (laughs) Land Law 101. Yes. But I suppose from my perspective, the most interesting jurisdiction is in our mineral and resources and environment jurisdiction. Mm. So we, we have an unusual function of advising the ultimate decision makers on applications for mining authorities and environmental authorities. And we also do deal with compensation and terms of access to land for those resource activities. Mm. And I find that very interesting because my background was in resources and environmental law before I was appointed to any judicial office. And 
I get to see lots of experts. I really do enjoy uh, learning from our expert witnesses and in areas that are beyond my training. Now, you mentioned that the Land Court is in an interesting position when it comes to mining leases or um, applications. That sort of points to the elephant in the room, not myself, the decision that you handed down last week or the week before? On Friday, last Friday. Last Friday. So so how does that that jurisdiction actually work? So you actually provide, it's not a judgment per se, or you... Oh, no, it is a judgment, but we're part of the administrative processing of the application. A company that wants a mining lease will apply. The mining lease provide all the documentation, make it available for public comment. If there are objections to the application, then the matter comes to the court. And the court holds a hearing. And in this case, the the Waratah case, the hearing was over about, I suppose if you put all of the days in court and site inspection together, it would have been somewhere between five and six weeks Mm. of actual hearing. Uh, Lots of expert evidence. It's all on the public record. Mm. We run it as much as possible, like any other court process. We're not bound by the rules of evidence, but it's a very good guide. Mm. Certainly, relevance is the number one check. And I receive detailed submissions, and I then make a recommendation Mm. where I explain my reasons for that recommendation. Mm. Sometimes there are legal issues. In this case, there were some legal issues that I had to rule on. But it's a merits process as much as a legal process. So it's exploring the merits of the application bearing in mind the nature of the activity and the nature of the objections that have been raised Mm. to it. At the end of the day, my judgment results in a recommendation to the Minister Mm. for the mining lease and to the Director-General for the Environment Authority as to whether they should grant or not the application. And if they should grant it, whether there are special conditions that I would recommend. I'm guessing your recommendation is is taken very much to heart. Well, by law, the decision maker is required to take into account the recommendation. I can tell you after writing however many hundreds of pages it was on this one, I would certainly hope it was taken seriously. Can you appeal a recommendation? Yes. So because it's an administrative decision, what any disaffected person can do is to apply for a statutory order of review. Right. So that then goes to the Supreme Court. A single judge of the Supreme Court will hear it and then it's in the normal appeal process. We have had some cases go all the way to special leave being refused in the High Court or special leave being granted in the High Court. Right. So it ultimately it could end up in the High Court. So this is a very multifaceted and interesting jurisdiction that doesn't get much airtime. No, no. Well, those who practice in it know it well. Yes. But it is, uh, it's like any specialist court or jurisdiction. I think that there can be a tendency for a little, I suppose, a clique or a club yes. to grow around it. Yes. And those who aren't familiar with it feel... Um, intimidated? Intimidated. By, and... I I think that's very sad. I'm always pleased to see new counsel and new solicitors appearing in the court. We've got a lot of information about our practices and procedures available on the website. It's not hard. We're dealing with self-represented parties all the time. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We have a procedural assistance service which has self-reps in mind, but it's also a really good source of information for the profession. Right. So... 
for lawyers who are coming to the land court for the first time go on to look for procedural assistance service for the land court and you'll get a lot of entry level oh okay this is how they do things fantastic yeah. Yeah. but essentially what the 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 practices that I've driven here have been very much, you know, modern case management, definition of issues, effective use of expert witnesses, mm. holding parties to account for their approach to the case, mm. marshalling the hearing plan, and I'm delighted to say that in the Waratah case, the lawyers worked really collaboratively on that aspect, even though they were hotly contesting the issues. Mm. They produced a hearing plan for me, which I described as an aspirational document. Wow. But by and large, we, we, we held to it. And that was in no small part because of their commitment to making the process work, mm. but also our insistence, the court's insistence, that, mm. that you're well prepared, that expert evidence is fully documented before you start the hearing, mm. and then you run it as effectively and efficiently and fairly. As you can. Mm. So I was really pleased and hats off to them for how hard they all worked. Yeah, so speaking of the Waratah case, that's a pretty big, if I may say, and excuse the pun, landmark decision. I need to stop making jokes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if you do it again, I'll laugh. <laughs> a landmark decision, oh, Your Honour. That is so good. <laughs> Thank you. I feel really humid. That's great. Um, but it, it really is. It's it's groundbreaking. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, it's very hard to come up with an analogy that's not land-related. I know. It? It, I'm, I'm finding it difficult. But it's based in human rights, is my understanding. Well, there were three. There were three grounds, really, three major grounds that were raised in the objections. One related to the impacts on a nature refuge one related to climate change impacts and the other was human rights. And I, the judgment speaks for itself, but I will say that it is the first time that human rights have been raised in Australia mm. as a reason that a mining uh, application should not proceed. Mm. To get into it any further would involve me reciting 187 pages of my decision, so I won't. So you've mentioned a few times expert evidence. Mm -hmm. Does your Honour have any tips when it comes to presenting expert evidence to the court? Because expert evidence is at the core of nearly all of our cases, we see it as fundamental. We have built on a process that you'll see in many courts with requiring opposing experts to meet and to develop a joint report for the court to identify what they agree about, what they disagree about and why. Mm. But we've taken it a step further in a couple of ways. The first way is that we have a member of the court who manages the briefing of experts, the development of the joint report and the sequencing and communications between the experts and the lawyers. Right. And we do that to ensure things keep going, mm -hmm. so that it's for efficiency, but also for integrity. And it's done in a without prejudice way. Second aspect of it is that we try and set the experts off on the same path together. Instead of them developing their individual reports first, and entrenching themselves in positions that they find it difficult to resolve from something they put in writing. Mm. We get the lawyers to develop a single brief that goes to both experts. So they get the same information, they're asked the same questions. 
that, of course, can be difficult because sometimes there will be an argument between the lawyers about what's relevant to give to the experts. Mm. And the way we deal with it is this. We say, well, the material can be included in a brief without prejudice to your right to object down the track right. to its relevance to the hearing. Yes. Most things, 99.8% of potential arguments about relevance fall away, even before the hearing. But if there is something that is critical, um, then there's a process for them to bring it to the court for a ruling before the brief is finalised. Right. And so there have been a couple of occasions um, where I've, I've had to decide whether experts should be briefed to answer certain questions or to look at certain documents. But on the whole, look, if one party thinks it's relevant, it goes in the brief, and then the experts will generally say whether it's relevant or not. And if they need further information, further instruction, then they can raise that through the member. And more often than not, the area of disagreement is quite small. But in many cases, there would be a joint report where there is nothing of substance that they disagree about, or it might be just a question of degree. That's brilliant, if you don't mind someone completely inferior to your honour making that assessment, that it's brilliant. Oh, look, you know, when you receive bad press, you're always happy to get some Okay, well, just I, I fall at your honour's feet. I think the final thing I'd say about expert evidence is that by default now, we'll swear in the experts and they give evidence concurrently, with a number of us asking questions, including me. Mm. So sometimes I will intervene a lot and mm -hmm. ask lots of questions because I'm left in a state of uncertainty yes. as a result of the, their answers to counsel's questions. Other times I, I, I have very little that I need to ask because the way in which the counsel have conducted their questioning has been very rigorous and effective. Right. For practitioners across our beautiful state of Queensland, mm -hmm who may not appear in your honour's jurisdiction very often, any general tips about what to expect or what your honour has observed we could improve upon? Look, I think expect that you need to have thought about how you want this case to run because there are lots of procedural options open. So take the time to have a look at the practice directions and familiarise yourself with it. Mm. We have model directions that are published on our website and that's a really good way for a practitioner to think about, well, what do I want to come out of this directions hearing? Mm -hmm. So all of our cases, within about six weeks of the case commencing, there will be a directions hearing. And at the directions hearing, that's when the course for the case is usually set. And it's incredibly irritating if somebody comes to a directions hearing thinking it's just a vague mention and they don't have to be able to explain what the case is about and how they want it procedurally to be dealt with by the court. So that would be my number one tip. Number two, we have this little footprint here in the southeast corner, but we're accessible throughout the state. Mm. We will usually do a site inspection of land that is subject of any hearing before the case, if that is going to assist us with the hearing. And parties can appear, even if they're located within Brisbane, they can appear if they wish by using video conferencing or telephone. I, I prefer video conferencing personally 
to, to telephone appearances. You can look them in the eye. I can. It's very, very easy. And if any practitioner has a concern about using it, they can contact um, the associate to the member that they're appearing before uh, the day before and they can do a test run. Yeah, right. On, on their equipment so that they, they're familiar with it. And comfortable. Mm. All right, let me ask Your Honour a would you rather question. Oh my goodness. Would you rather walk to work in heels or drive to work in reverse? Drive to work in reverse. And why is that? Because I'm an old woman and I have arthritis <laughs> in my toes. <laughs> well, that's a fair but enough I'm answer. Good, I'm pretty good at reversing. You know, I can reverse just using my mirrors. And I knew I had made it with my father-in-law when I reversed with him in the car. And he said, oh, you use the mirrors. <laughs> Nothing I had done up to that point clearly had impressed him. No, no. no. When I reversed a huge using mirrors, that was it. Was it manual? Yeah. Oh, that's just beyond impressive. Yeah. So that, that's what I would rather do. Okay, fair enough. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Crowell and this is The Briefcase.